0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. The new book, American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, by Robert D. Putnam and David E. Campbell, is one of the most massive reports on religion in American public life over the last 50 years. But it's more than that. It's also an insightful survey of what Americans really believe, how they report their beliefs, and how they translate these beliefs into their everyday actions, their neighborliness, their engagement with the community, their voting patterns, and much, much more. I'm looking forward to a conversation with the lead author of that book, Professor Robert D. Putnam. Robert D. Putnam is the Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University. He is one of the world's most influential public intellectuals, the author of many books, including the much-acclaimed book, Bowling Alone. He's now the lead author, along with David E. Campbell, of the book American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us. Professor Putnam, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Bob, when I read your book, uh, it, it it really appears to me that this is one of the most significant analyses of religion in American public life to come in a very long time. How did you come up with the, 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 the desire, the plan, uh, the motivation to write this particular book?
1: Well, we aim to provide the most comprehensive and in-depth survey of the role of religion in America in the last half century. Um, America is a very religious country, uh, and America's various communities of faith contribute a lot to the vitality of our democracy, but religion can also be very divisive. uh, As we can tell from world history, and even from the world around us today, religion taken in high doses can be toxic for civic life. America, we find, is almost uniquely devout, religiously devout, and diverse, and yet tolerant. That's unusual in the world, and we examine in the book how religion affects our civic life, both dividing us as a country and uniting us.
0: Yes. Uh, just in recent days, we spoke with Professor Peter Berger at Boston University about the the course and uh, corrections of secularization theory, and he was pretty candid with this, talking about how that American exceptionalism turns out not only to be well exceptional, but rather long lasting. You really do verify, even in the comments you just made, and in this massive study, that religion still has a very important voice voice and uh, and culture shaping influence in America.
1: There's no doubt about it. We we show in the book, for example, that not only is America much more religious in its beliefs and in its practices than any other advanced industrial country, but we're even more religious. Americans are even more religious uh, by judged by their uh, faith and their practice than Iranians of all things. And so, America is very religious. Now, we've also become as a country, more polarized in religious terms over the last half century. So there are more really deeply religious people in America than there used to be and more pretty secular people in America than there used to
0: be. Well, you put that into a narrative context. I think that's something that is a unique contribution of your book. And by the way, you mentioned earlier about those who take religion in high doses. I think it's fair to say that most of the people who will be listening to this interview take uh, take Christianity in a pretty high dose but are also very interested in how to be constructive in terms of engagement with public life and with uh, the larger American culture. You talk about this narrative, as I say, in terms of a shock and two aftershocks. So kind of take us over the last 50 years and talk about what you really lay out there in terms of shock, aftershock and aftershock.
1: Well, we begin our story with America, America in the 1950s. America in the 1950s was a very religious place, um, probably, in some respects, the most religious, uh, religiously observant time in American history. Um, Gallup recorded in the late 1950s that as many as uh, 50 or 60 percent of Americans said they went to church every week. Um, and... Um, uh all-time records in Bible sales and in church building and so on. Um, and then, like an earthquake, came the 60s. And the 60s uh, was many things, of course. It was the Vietnam War protest, and it was the Civil Rights Movement, and it was the women's movement, and it was um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it was a sharp—it witnessed a sharp fall in all aspects of, of religious— belief and behavior in America. Um, a, sharp, a large segment of uh, Americans in the 60s, especially young Americans, the boomers were just coming of age in that decade, moved off to the secular end of the religious continuum. Uh, church attendance fell more rapidly in that in that one decade than I think ever in American history. Um, uh, and the the, it was tied up with um uh rapid change in uh sexual uh morality both yeah. in, in what people said and what they did and most Americans experience that most young Americans experience that as a kind of liberation um really all of the all of the above that is the the sexual changes the the gender changes the the ethnic and racial changes and so on, that was all seen as liberation. And so as the 60s ended, we were a much less observant country than we had been just a few years earlier. Um, and as I say, for, for many Americans, especially young Americans, that was great. But for a number of Americans and probably many of the people in your audience, it didn't seem great at all. It seemed like a collapse of fundamental moral principles and so there was a uh an aftershock that began in the 1970s and 80s um in which a substantial number of people, probably a minority of the population but still a lot of people looked for a religious context that would most um strongly um correspond to their own conservative views. I don't mean actually initially it was not about conservative politics, it was about conservative ethics especially on things like Sexual behavior and, and family values, and so on, and that the uh, I think it was Saint Paul who talked about the importance of, a, of an, uh, that a that an uncertain trumpet. No one's going to rally to an uncertain trumpet. Well, the most certain trumpet in those years, in the 70s and 80s, were were being sounded by evangelical Protestants, and so there was an, a substantial increase in the number of Americans who identified with um, with evangelical Protestantism and with with moral conservatism and so that first aftershock sent a large number of americans off to the more religious end of the spectrum so the first shock sent lots of younger especially boomers off to the secular end and the second after the first aftershock sent a number of americans off to the uh more religious end of the spectrum and um it was not initially a political movement but some but politicians uh, Republican politicians and politicians, conservative politicians, soon recognized that this was a new market, and they um, began appealing to that market, and that produced what came to be called the the religious right or the Christian right, and that um, for the 70s and 80s um, uh, attracted a lot of attention. Most most people were in that in the 70s and 80s were talking about religion in terms of the religious right. And the folks who were in the religious right experienced that as um, an appropriate retort or response to the immorality of the 60s. Um, but there were... And and there was... You know, that was the era in which there was more um, talk about uh, the political role of religion. And that was fine for them, but there were another group of Americans who actually, for whom it was not fine at all, who began to... Who were religious, but who were not at all... uh Enamored of the idea of religion, mixing of religion and politics, and so, after about 1990, there was a second aftershock which sent a number of Americans off to the more secular end of the spectrum, especially young Americans. And there was a very sharp increase in the number of younger Americans who said they had no religious, no connection to organized religion at all. That historically, that had, that had, that category of what we call the nuns, the people who don't, N uh, O N E S, the people who have no connection to religious, or to organized religion, that historically been about 5 or 7% of Americans, but among today, among 20 uh, somethings, younger Americans, that figure is about 30%. So it's a huge increase. That was the second aftershock, and that sent yet another group of Americans off to the secular end. So the result of this shock and two aftershocks is that we've become more divided into very religious people and very not religious people, and and moreover, yeah. that's now correlated with our politics. It didn't used to be. There used to be lots of Democrats in the pews and lots of unchurched conservatives, but now there's a strong correlation between whether you go to church and how you vote.
0: Well, we're going to return to that issue in just a moment. Let me, let me just ask you, when, when you come to this uh, this narrative you lay out, I found it one of the most convincing uh, ways of looking at religion and, uh, and even evangelical Christianity in America in the last 50 years. Talk about the shock of the 60s and the first aftershock that came with uh, the rise of uh, the, the new religious right, as it's been described. And, and then along comes another aftershock. You, you kind of left out of that narrative the fact that in that second aftershock, there is a significant rise of those who are religiously unaffiliated. They're, they're atheists. And they're agnostics, yes, but even more, who are the uh, the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the right. none of the aboves
1: um i wouldn't actually say that they're atheists or even agnostics uh, actually al um you're absolutely right that's that's the most starting uh, startling feature of the of this first of the second aftershock this sharp rise beginning very clearly uh, around 1990 and for the last now 20 years um actually it some people don't realize this but the growth of evangelicalism as a as a faith tradition in america actually as a fraction of all americans stopped about 20 years ago now, uh, and it's been sort of stagnant or maybe even declining um, over the last 20 years. But in, in its place has come this sharp rise in the number of people who are unaffiliated religiously. Many of them are believers. Many of them um, say they believe in God and say religion is important in their life, and they they have a lot of conventional religious beliefs. But for that young generation they associate religion with, as they see it, I'm not now endorsing this view myself, but as they see it, with intolerance and with um, uh, conservative politics, and above all, they associate it with homophobia, with opposition to homosexuality. And this, these are the very young people who themselves are much more open-minded about homosexuality. I don't mean yeah. that they're homosexuals themselves. So just as the religious leadership of the conservative part of America was zigging to the right on homosexuality, this group of young people nationwide was zigging was zagging to the left, and that is an important part of the explanation for this growth in
0: disaffiliation. Yeah, I, th- I think for this conversation, a very important issue here is the fact, in fact, you, you put this in your narrative earlier, and that is that there was a basic shift that took place in the 90s that no one seemed to note. Uh, The conservative Christians are suggesting uh, the evangelicals stopped growing in terms of numbers and perhaps even in terms of influence during the 90s. And this other group did start growing. And I think it's interesting looking at your book that the analysis is very difficult to refute, but uh, it's somewhat humbling to recognize that no one seemed to notice it at the time. You know, we're, we're talking here almost 20 years later.
1: We are. It's all, you know, it's hard to it's hard to see turning points in history when you're in the middle of it i do actually think that for better or worse uh the 90s was an important turning point um, in favor so to speak of this of the of the secular end of this continuum and and a turning point against evangelical uh, protestantism um uh, as late as um as 1990 among young american in 1990 evangelicals outnumbered the nuns that is these people say they're not religious at all even though they may have religious beliefs but i mean their practices they're unconnected with organized religion really, um, evangelical young evangelicals outnumbered young nuns by about two to one in 1990 and those proportions have now completely flipped yeah uh the young nuns outnumber young evangelicals almost two to one
0: It's certainly interesting to hear Bob Putnam's analysis of how we arrived at this present moment in American public life. I think the narrative he offers of shock, aftershock, and aftershock is a very important corrective to the general kinds of reports we get on these issues. What it generally told us is that America is slowly evolving in a more secular direction. What Bob Putnam points out is that it isn't a simple narrative like that. There's much more to the story, and that's why we need to talk about this much further. Now, let's jump right into the value section because I, I think when you consider what it means for most people to look at the, uh, the questions of church and state, religion and public life, uh, all the moral controversies around us, uh, I, I think most people immediately jump to politics because, I mean, after all, that's where, that's where the money is headed. That's where the energy is headed. That's where the laws are made. And so right now, even as we're having this conversation with a midterm election just before us, Is it fair to say that that religious belief is a fair predictor of voting behavior? Oh, it's
1: very sharply true nowadays. It actually didn't used to be that case uh, as recently as the 1970s. There was essentially no correlation between how often you went to church and how you voted. There were lots of Democrats and lots of liberals in the pews on Sunday and lots of unchurched conservatives. But both of those categories have gotten much smaller more people have their religion and politics aligned now. Um that's a kind of a new development actually in, in um in American politics. It certainly was not the case in earlier um earlier eras in America that there was this sharp division between people who go to church and people who don't. We discovered, for example, a kind of a interesting thing which is that if you ask people how often they say grace over or before meals about half of all Americans say grace all the time, virtually every day, and about half of Americans never say grace. And if you tell me whether you say grace or not, I can, I know, I can statistically tell you a lot about about your your politics and your political views and your social views and so on. It's a it's a dividing line. America has become basically two Americas. In part, actually, because we're sort of sorting ourselves out religiously, to our astonishment. When people's politics and religion nowadays are inconsistent, that is, they're liberal but religious, or they're conservative but not religious, uh, you might say, well, if they're inconsistent, what changes to make them consistent? Do people bring their politics in line with their faith, or they, do they bring their religion into line with their political views? And the answer to our shock was most people in that situation change their religion to fit their politics. Rather than the other way around, so we're sorting ourselves out religiously in terms of our political views. We di- actually, I didn't really believe that when I first saw it because I thought it was hard to believe that people would be making decisions about their eternal fate on the basis of how they felt about felt about Bill Clinton or George W. Bush. But that's the the fact. so our our politics and our religion today are closely aligned. To be honest with you, now I'm not completely sure that's good for religion. But that's another matter.
0: Well, I'm a theologian. I can tell you I'm fairly certain that's not good for uh, for uh, uh, Christian uh, authenticity. But but I'll tell you, that is a bombshell. And uh, it, it's one that uh, hearing in your voice comes with even greater energy. Let me ask you, as a political scientist, looking at this God gap, or this God divide, looking at uh, its political and cultural and ideological uh, you know, delineations here, why do you think this happened? I mean, c- can you as a political scientist point to some causative factor and say, that's where it happened, that's why it happened?
1: Yeah, I think we can, actually. Um, th- there are many things, of course, that are relevant, but the most important goes back to the 60s, really, and uh, and and our attitudes about sexual uh, morals and, and uh, the role of uh, sex in our society. Um, people often... Refer in this context to abortion, or maybe to homosexuality, and that, those obviously are important distinctions. Um, but equally important, we found in the work is how people feel about premarital sex, actually, which is a which is not all on the public agenda, but is a big dividing line between these two different Americas: the the, the more religious and the less religious. I think um, it didn't used to be the case that parties were divided on abortion or on homosexuality or anything. There was not, there was not a a Republican and a democratic position on abortion or, or homosexuality or, or these, these sort of family values issues. Um, I know to contemporary listeners, that'll sound really odd, but, but, uh, you know, as recently as the, as the 1970s, the parties, both parties were divided on those issues, but then the Republican party moved pretty sharply toward the, pro life and pro family values side, and the Democrats moved toward the the other side of that issue and once that happened once the parties chose upside, then it became you know a little more obvious where how the how people would how people would sort themselves out in religious terms but I do want to emphasize that, as far as our research is concerned, we see the fundamental polarization as being fundamentally the political polarization is driving us apart on in in religious terms and one of the important after all the book is subtitled how religion divides and unites us and one of the important themes in the book we've been talking about the dividing part so far is that despite this uh political polarization we've talked about at the personal level Americans on all sides of this religious um divide are much more tolerant of other people than I think anybody fully realizes. Religious people are actually much more tolerant of people in other religions or even people with no religion at all in personal terms. And conversely, secular people are much more open-minded about the role of religion, even favorable to the role of religion in American life, than you'd guess if you just read the, the public media. We are not as divided in personal terms as we think we are.
0: I want to go back to the issue of the the moral divide for just a moment because you dropped another bombshell in your book that, uh, that frankly, I've not seen mentioned in any similar study. On page 119 of American Grace, you say this, although uh, also important by this test are homosexuality, feminism, abortion, and pornography, though none was so powerful as premarital sex. Right. You know, I found that something of a surprise, but once I thought about it, it was obvious. It's just that I don't recall anyone else looking at that particular moral question with the intensity and focus that you did.
1: Well, you know, what we did was to look at uh, a—we looked at many, many different questions in in our survey and other people's survey to see what were the ways in which people—religious and non-religious people are divided. You know, religious and non-religious people are actually not so divided over, I don't know, over um, foreign policy or over— over um uh, environmental policy or over um uh you know uh, economic policy actually there are religious people and 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 secular people on all sides of all of those issues um and but we also looked to see well what are the one, what are the issues on which they're most divided obviously they're divided on abortion and obviously they're divided on homosexuality but but even more sharply is is this distinction about uh how you feel about premarital sex the reason that we thought that was important was that's not being debated at all in public terms, but there still is a big gap. And it goes to the importance of, of facing, you know, moral choices in, in our religious views.
0: Well, if you'll allow me, I'm going to ask you to turn from looking at the past to looking to the future. Where, where do you see this picture going? If, if you were to take your own study out in your own imagination, given the current issues of American public life, where, where do you think we're going with this?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. If you just read the the raw data, you'd have to say that we're in a period of and have been for the last 20 years, of a, of a sharply increasing secularization, mostly because the younger generation, unlike previous younger generations, have just stepped sharply away from organized religion. And many people, especially many people on the secular side, think of this as, you know, finally America's becoming a secular nation. I actually don't think that's quite right. Many of these young people in their private beliefs are have quite conventional uh, religious beliefs i think they've been very turned off as i've said by the conjunction of of politics and religion and um that means that there's a pool of young people out there um who are would by many measures would be religious Except that from there they grew up in a period in which being religious meant being conservative and Republican, and that's not them. And they've essentially said, "Well, if that's all religion is about, is just about Republican conservative politics, that's not me. I'm out of here." But you know, that's a pool of souls waiting to be saved from a religious point of view. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, "Be fishers of men." I think he probably meant men and women. And and there's a pool with a lot of fish in it and nobody fishing there. And if you ask me, I bet you quite a bit. That over the next 10 15 20 years um, some successful religious entrepreneurs people who want to save a lot more souls will be looking at that pool and saying I think I know the kind of religion that would be attractive to them it would be it might very well have a lot of the accoutrements of um, and the liturgy and so on of evangelical religion Um but it wouldn't have the, the sharp political edge. Um, and I guess I'd be willing to bet that over the next um, 10 or 15 years, we'll see a kind of, um, it'll be really religious. It's not that it's going to be namby-pamby, but it won't be so political. Now, you know, Yogi Berra is the expert on prediction. Yogi Berra said prediction is hard, especially about the future. So I'm getting myself in hot water here by by making that, Prediction, but you invited me to. Well,
0: I I, uh, I offered you the uh, the fruit of the tree, and you ate of it. So uh, <laughs> you've you, you succumbed to the temptation there. But well, that's a part of the fun. Another fun question I like to ask authors, especially in dealing with these big picture questions, is uh, what surprised you the most about your your research?
1: Well, you know, we found some um, sharp evidence, some very clear evidence that religious people are, by many measures, um, better neighbors. Uh, better friends than secular people are, and you know, I suppose religious people might not be surprised at that. But religious people, we show match—we're matching people by their, you know, in terms of their age and gender and race and religion. I mean, uh, um, uh, part of the country, region, and so on. And religious people are significantly more likely to to volunteer for secular causes, not just as church ushers, but for secular causes. More likely to give to secular charities, as well as to drop money in the in the offering plate. More likely to Take part in community projects, or to work for social betterment in the community, to, to vote, and to and uh, and even to let people cut in front in front of the line. Um, but it turned out that, if I can put it this way without offense, it theology doesn't have much to do with it. It doesn't much matter wh- what your beliefs are. What matters in terms of making you a better uh, a better a more generous uh, friend and neighbor is your membership in a community of faith. It's not so much faith per se as community of faith. If you're deeply involved in in your congregation and have a lot of friends at church, you are way nicer than than other people. But if you pray alone, you know you're really devout and you and you pray all the time and you sit alone in the pew, you're actually turn out not to be any better neighbor than a secular person. So it's the Yeah it's our communities of faith, I think, that are really powerful. That's what That was one of the takeaways for us.
0: Yeah, well, we'll tell you, as a theologian, I think I have a, an idea of why that's so, but it's fascinating to hear the sociological analysis. Now, let me turn the tables on you just for a moment and say, you know, this is an opportunity to speak to a, a, a listenership of largely evangelical Christians. Uh, from where you are, from from what you see, and and uh, the the kind of project you've undertaken here in American Grace, uh, what would you say, particularly, to American evangelical Christians reading your book?
1: I think the first thing I'd say to that audience is, um, don't be quite so angry about the rest of America. Um, there's actually... A lot more sympathy for religion in the rest of America than you might think there is, um, and um, be a, a little more confident and open and um, willing to to talk with people from other faith traditions and even people from no faith tradition at all. Now I know perfectly well that lots of evangelicals already have that kind of open, relaxed attitude toward the social environment, and and I'm for those folks. I'm saying. Uh, keep it, keep it up. It's, um, that's, I think, the right stance. What I'm talking to secular audiences, by the way, I give them exactly the same message, but in reverse, I say, look, those religious people don't hate you, and, and, and they're not, you know, kind of little Taliban members wanting to, wanting to convert America into a theocracy. They're, they're other, they're good Americans just like you. So I'm, I'd sort of like both sides in this culture war to kind of, it a little bit. We're not nearly as antagonistic and hostile towards one another as you might guess from reading the papers.
0: Intellectual engagements are very important. They're also, unfortunately, rare, all too rare. We should value the opportunity for a conversation with a professor in the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, one of the world's most influential public intellectuals. Bob Putnam's willingness to engage us in conversation is a gift. In return, we need to think seriously about what he's told us. One of the most important acts of intellectual stewardship is to learn how to read a book. And as I often say to my students, we need to read a book for all it's worth. And that means putting it into context, understanding its purpose, being able to judge its credibility, and then considering what kind of intellectual impact it should have on our lives and our thinking. When you read a book like American Grace, How Religion Divides and Unites Us, what you're looking at here is a massive work of sociology. It's written by political scientists. It comes to us with tremendous value. Now, we're going to be looking at this, and inevitably, evangelical Christians are going to be reading it with a lens, a focus that is intensely and unapologetically theological. That's really important. That's where we have to begin, and that's where we have to end. But we need to read a work of sociology as a work of sociology, we need to be able to take it on its own terms. And the field of sociology, this kind of political analysis, the the field of political science, all of these disciplines come together to offer what is known as a phenomenological understanding. That goes back to a German school of thought that says the most important way to understand, certainly human social behavior, is to take it as it is, to identify exactly what it is, and to try to be able to explain why it is as it is. So phenomenology attempts not to make a value judgment on whether people are right or wrong, but simply to come to an accurate understanding of what they believe and why it matters. So if you read a sociological text like this, one of the first questions you want to ask is, well, is it credible? Has this actually accomplished the purpose of explaining what it seeks to explain? Well, having read a, an enormous amount of data and, uh, and just about every book I can get my hands on in the related discipline, well, I can tell you that the book American Grace meets the standard of that kind of credibility. It's the kind of study with the kind of scientific credibility that you would expect ...from a professor at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. It's the kind of work you would expect from Robert Putnam, knowing his work in the past. You look at this, and one of the points that Putnam and Campbell make in their book... ...is that the scientific data they point to, the the survey and, and analyses that they base their arguments on... ...they affirm that it's important to see whether they're replicated in other studies. If indeed there is some area in which their report stands out in distinction or contradiction to other reports then they'll want to go back and analyze it. But in the main, what they discovered is that the big story they tell is very well replicated in other studies as well. Now, if you're going to look at this work as a a project of sociology, you're going to go back and ask the question, does it really tell us what we need to know about this era, about this question? And I want to tell you, I think the unique contribution of this book in the first place is the narrative in which Putnam and Campbell place these changes – When they talk about shock, aftershock, and aftershock, it's not just a clever way of talking about history. You go back to the 1960s, and it's fair to say there was a massive shock to the American public life. The body politic was reeling from the massive social and moral and political revolutions of the 1960s. And I think where they're exactly right is to point to American Christians in particular and say there was a response to the 60s that was definitely an effort to try to create some moral retrenchment, to recover something that was lost. The shock of the 60s sent many evangelicals, certainly, into the political sphere where they never had been active before, and they never really thought about the need to to attend to these issues with a particular evangelical worldview. That's the first aftershock. And if you're going to put a label on that first aftershock, it's the rise of the new Christian right. And he's not talking there just about those who were organizationally involved in the movements of the new Christian right. He's talking about the larger value shift of persons who said, no, this civilization's in trouble. This culture headed it in the wrong direction. We need to respond to it, largely on moral issues with abortion and homosexuality being the lead issues. But once again, they're helpful in pointing out that those were hardly the only issues. I think the genius of this work and where evangelicals are going to find an awful lot of fodder for thought is in the second aftershock. Because I think most evangelicals think, okay, shock, aftershock, I've got that. I understand the rise of of evangelical momentum and evangelical political engagement. I've got that. But what Putnam and Campbell come back to demonstrate is that there was another aftershock that began in the 1990s, a response not to the 60s but to that second aftershock. These are folks who said, we don't like the way that conservative Christians would take this country. And indeed, we don't like what we hear. And he points out some things that evangelicals really need to pay attention to. For instance, he suggests that the growth in evangelical momentum ended in the 1990s. And thus for a period that it could be as long as 20 years, we have been in an era of uh, evangelical retreat. Now, you look back over the last 20 years and that comes into somewhat of a clear focus now. But we didn't see it at the time. Now, that doesn't necessarily tell us us anything about our beliefs. It it doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the future in terms of of how we should shape our arguments. It does tell us that something changed, and if we are ignorant of that fact, it will be to our own peril. Now, when we look at other issues that, that they really deal with in this book, I'll tell you their documentation about the moral divide in America is priceless. Now, it's not new. You have works like James Davis and Hunter talking about culture wars many as, as 20 years ago. You have so much political analysis. Indeed, we now recognize electoral maps divided into blue and red states. That That's common to us. But what isn't common is the kind of analysis that Putnam and Campbell bring to the deeper question. For instance, did you note the issue of premarital sex? Well, they're right. This isn't an issue of conversation because the Supreme Court isn't ruling on it. You know, U.S. senatorial candidates aren't debating it. It's not front and center in the editorial pages of our paper, but they suggest that the shift on the issue of premarital sex and its morality is more profound than the indications of questions like abortion and homosexuality. And you look at it and you say, well, I guess that makes perfect sense because it is an even more fundamental question. And you look at it and you realize that evangelical Christians may be among the very few in America who actually believe there is any moral significance to premarital sex at all. Now, let me suggest to you that that's a very important insight. If Americans have experienced a greater moral transformation on the issue of premarital sex than any other question, then it tells us that that issue just might be driving many of those other questions as well. When we're talking to people about abortion or homosexuality or same-sex marriage or any number of other issues, well, it's important to know that that more basic divide about even the morality premarital sex is there sometimes just under the surface. Now, looking at this issue of the moral divide in America, I think the big question, of course, for a sociologist or political scientist is how Americans can get along and create a common public culture with that kind of values divide. Well, for Christians, that's a very valid question. How in the world do we negotiate a world of such incredible values polarization? How do we communicate our message? How do we tell people the truth in a way that is hearable and in a way that that is understandable? Did you notice when he talks about the religious predictor factor of voting, I think one of the most interesting insights in this book is exactly what he talked about in this interview. He said that they discovered that if you ask people if they say grace or if they say a prayer of thanksgiving and blessing before a meal, they can pretty much tell you exactly how they're going to vote. Now, if you look at the data in the book, it's really interesting because it turns out that Americans are divided between those who say a word of grace just before every single meal and those who never say it at all. And so there's a worldview that is involved here. It's not just a habit of the heart, as Robert Bella and others would point out. It's indeed a, uh, a habit that is a predictor of a worldview. He talked about Americans being nice, uh, religious Americans, as he defines them, being nice. That, that's a good thing to know. Uh, nice is, uh, is something that uh, is, after all, nice. But nice has limits. And uh, living in American public life, negotiating these issues, we desperately want to be nice as we tell the truth. But I'd be interested to know exactly what the limitations and definitions of nice are. I am glad to hear, I think we're all glad to hear, that American Christians show up in this kind of survey as being ready to engage others in conversation. That's important. Uh, Ready to help and extend compassion to others. That's very important. And, of course, we have a gospel reason for that not merely a sociological or public relations reason for that. I thought one of the key insights of his book has to do with what he said about when religion and, uh, and political positions and, uh, and these two worldviews are often held inconsistently. He said something that I've never heard said by a scholar in this field of inquiry before. He said that they determined that when an individual had an incommensurate set of positions with uh, religious beliefs on one hand and uh, political convictions on the other, it was not the case that the religious convictions would drive a change in the political positions. Instead, it turns out that the political positions drive a change in the theological worldview. Now, for evangelical Christians, that comes as an explosive bomb. This is something that needs to get our attention immediately. This is a hand grenade put on the table with a pen pulled out. It's also something that needs to be heard at both ends of the spectrum. That is to say, I think conservative Christians looking at that will immediately say, OK, there's the danger. If you hold to a liberal political positions, pretty soon you're going to hold to liberal theological positions. And, uh, and, and you'll just simply make your, your religious convictions, your Christian convictions come in line with your political affirmations. But, of course, uh, we need to hear that same judgment. We need to make certain that we do not hold to conservative theological positions in service to a political purpose, but rather that we are driven by biblical truth to an understanding of the Christian faith from which we faithfully engage all the questions of the day. It is absolutely frightening to me as a theologian, uh, earth-shakingly a matter of concern, to believe that people will basically sell out their theological beliefs and conform their convictions to meet a political purpose or a political position. That's the kind of insight that is crucial. It's the kind of insight you can gain by reading this kind of sociological analysis. But I have to return here at the end to where I was at the beginning. When an evangelical Christian reads this kind of analysis, we learn a great deal. And we learn how to read this kind of analysis. We we learn how to absorb this kind of sociological data. And it's not just about a book like American Grace, as important as it is. It's also about the kind of survey data and newspaper reports and media accounts we get constantly as this study center or this forum or this think tank is releasing a study. We need to be able to look at it. We need to be able to analyze the data. We need to be able to ask the hard questions, not only about what this means for the research population, but what it means for us. But we as Christians have to look at it with a different lens as well a theological lens. We have to look at it with a missiological lens. We have to look at it first of all as Christians and come to understand that when we look at this kind of data, it's telling us what is, not what ought to be. We gain our understanding of what ought to be and what ought to be believed first and foremost from the Bible. We're people of the book. And so if we're looking for what to believe, we don't look to this data. We indeed look to the word of God. We also look at it with a theological worldview that, given our last conversation of, uh, of the issue about uh, whether it's the political positions that drive the theological convictions or vice versa, we're the people who know it better be the theological and biblical convictions that drive all the rest. Evangelicals since the 1970s have learned the importance of the word worldview and the importance of making certain that our Christian convictions work their way out into everyday life. We have a missiological lens to which we read this as well. We desperately want to reach Americans as well as others all over the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to reach them with gospel truth. We want to reach them with the truth of the Bible and with the message that we preach and teach, the message we receive from Christ himself. Understanding the lay of the land, understanding the sociological landscape is a very important part of understanding what we're going to have to do in order to to meet our ambition to communicate to Americans. That doesn't mean that we change the message. It must not mean that we change the message. It does mean that we need to know who we're talking to. We need to know their worldview. We need to know their language. We need to know their assumptions. We need to know their hopes, and we need to know their fears. That's where reading a book like this, analyzing data like this, puts us in better position to be a better witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to Christian political and public engagement, when it comes to the big questions about how evangelicals engage the controversies over abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, and all the rest, we don't go to a work like this to find out what we believe. But it's important to know what our fellow Americans believe. And it's important to rethink again and again how we translate those beliefs that we gain from God's Word into the traction and into the threads of everyday life as we try to weave faithfully a public witness and private devotion. Many thanks to my guest, Professor Robert D. Putnam, for thinking with me today about his book, American Grace. But before signing off, I want you to know about a very special conference to be held on the Southern Seminary campus in coming days. The W Conference is about connecting women with the Word. It will feature our own Professor Mary Cassing, one of the best known writers in the Christian world and music provided by Heather Payne, who for many years was with the group Point of Grace. It'll be held on this campus November 19 through 20 of 2010. For more information about this conference and many others, go to spts.edu. You'll want to go to the same website for information about Southern Seminary. To know more about Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.